Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. That was never DEA's job was to go after the weed smokers. We were going after the cartels and the big dealers and the distributors and the people that were poisoning it. Now we're seeing that they're lacing it with fentanyl, these outlawed toxic chemicals. Uh, I really don't care, but you need to know what you're getting yourself into because you're putting chemicals in your system that you're never going to recover from. Hey, trivia, trivia question for you both. All right. Um, Pablo Escobar, first drug he started selling, Steve. Weed. George Young, first drug he started selling. <laughs> Weed. Yeah. yeah. What, what do they say? Marijuana is a gateway drug and marijuana for the cartels like a like a gateway uh, market. Business. It's yeah, a, exactly. it's a gateway, what, you know what it is? But it's here, the reason I brought that up, if we come back, because we actually interviewed George Young, episode number two. We got his last interview before uh, George passed away. And he talked about starting off selling weed and it talked about how he graduated to cocaine and the way the cartels worked and stuff. But what I'm saying is – what is old is new again, right? So mm-hmm. we're seeing that marijuana, everybody thought, oh, marijuana is going away, uh, marijuana. And maybe it was because you had the prevalence of cocaine and all these other stuff. Yeah. But you know what changed it, though? What changed it, it where I saw it started becoming and got the attention of the cartels? The minute you started legalizing it, anything that's legal usually creates an illegal market for something, especially when it is regulated to the extent that legal weed is. So what I, to your point, the reason I said, I asked you that question earlier about, you know, the rise of both of them, anytime you create this market, you also create the market conditions. But when you can do things, it's like nobody's making counterfeit cigarettes, but what they're doing is they're making counterfeit tax stamps to go after what Mm -hmm. the difference in the price between a legitimate pack of cigarettes and the ones that have the tax stamp on there because they keep the money for the tax stamp. This, at the end of the day, they have figured out a way now to monetize legal revenue why, or legal weed. Why? By creating these illegal operations that take advantage of this change in philosophy, this change in law that says, hey, guess what? Weed's legal now. Well, weed isn't, weed's legal only to a certain extent, but to your point, it's still a Schedule One according to the U.S. government, which means the banks now, you, you create another problem, right? Because now it is a very cash business. Yeah. So what, what have you created now? People are getting ripped off. They are holding on to millions of dollars. And you know where this was? Do you ever watch? Did you ever watch Tulsa King's Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, yeah. Guess what? One of the businesses he got into down in Tulsa was yeah. was was a weed shop. Yeah, and the cash that they generated, unbelievable. Yeah, and, and right now, you know, Morgan, to that point, I mean, there's there's a lot of guys in in my world, the special operations, that are coming back from either military or law enforcement special ops teams. And being recruited to be security, you know, for these legal weed shops because of the money they got to move around because they can't put it in banks, you know, they can't, they can't, they can't uh, have any type of electronic currency transaction or anything because where it's where it's scheduled. But I mean, there, there's a lot of different issues on what we're going to do federally with cannabis, what we're doing at the state level. But the bottom line is, you said it best, and 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 Steve, I like that you mentioned the poly criminals, transnational criminal organizations. We used to call them DTOs, drug trafficking organizations. That was a DEA term that I picked up from working with you guys, brother. 
together, and and then and then went beyond drugs, and they changed that name to TCO, Transnational Criminal Organization. I went, okay, now maybe people will better understand the nefariousness of everything these guys are involved in for a buck from the human trafficking down to cannabis and cannabis is by like you guys both said and you know this and i think our your listeners especially this is not just uh you know 80s and out the door this is old news you know it's it's not that big of a deal it's because we have regulated so poorly we've incentivized the cartels and if they can make money on tainted weed and poison people they will and they are as well as growing in other areas. And that's something we... we it's not just weed, John. Talk about talk about the entire supply chain for these illegal grows to happen, because I think you started laying it out. Let's talk about that, because it's not just about growing weed. They also traffic people. They also bring yep. in you know illegal... I mean, there is there is a series of things that happen when... You, it's like the broken window theory of crime, right? You, you don't fix a window, then this comes in, then this comes in. Well, the reverse is true. If you allow an illegal grow or these illegal grows go on... What are all of the related crimes that attach to that illegal grow? And it's not just the grow itself. It could be it could be the murders. It could be the missing people. It could be the crime that it creates because it brings in people that are criminals to begin with. Yeah, the human trafficking thing for sure, guys, is finally starting to get the attention that we've been trying. And, and you know, we I didn't name the the book hidden war for for nothing you know we we made we really wanted people to realize there's a hidden domestic war that we fought it on the cannabis front and all the peripheral crimes but we have to speak to all the other issues now human trafficking um basically you know drug sanctioned drug operations sanctioned slavery if you will there's a lot of people working in these growth sites against their will there's a lot of people that are in here for the sex trafficking as well and you know young kids being used for that we've seen that we've heard about it and we're starting to really expose that internationally like again and i i uh, <laughs> after seeing the sound of freedom yesterday hearing so much about this movie that hollywood buried for the better part of five years five years um Jim Caviezel just nailed it, you know, and I thought what Tim Ballard was doing down there, I was aware of the story. And I know Steve internationally from what you were doing in Southern South America, especially a little more closer to it, but realizing that in little old Silicon Valley mountains, where this all started for me and my team, and then branched out to the rest of the state of California, we were getting those impacts. I mean, that comes directly from, it started with Sinaloa and that started in South America, right? And worked its way up and, and all, all throughout Mexico. Um, so that, that's, that's a huge problem we got to look at. Um, methamphetamine, what we got to realize too, and chapter four in Hidden War goes into this. We actually interdicted a plaza boss, uh, basically a guy that was overseeing 50 grow sites for Sinaloa in Northern California. And I want to say this was right about the time, right before I was, uh, I was officially starting our marijuana enforcement team at agency, but working with our Santa Clara County sheriffs. And they were instrumental in helping vet us for our operations. And their white dope team had picked up this plaza boss um, on a 22 pound methamphetamine cook in the winter. This guy, unlike most of the more sociopathic, aggressive, some of the hardened guys we'd see in grows, this guy was, you know, straight up. He wasn't violent. He was a businessman. Um, he was actually really friendly and cordial, and he knew he was facing a lot of time. And working with us, knowing he was going to be protected, he was going to alleviate some of that time, and he was going to, you know, be very candid in some interviews. And I got to sit in on that interview with that plaza boss. Uh, we had Carlos Alfaro, the DCEP coordinator for DEA, uh, that was funding us, Steve at the time. Morgan, this was cool. Carlos set in. 
We had several of our other med officers from the sheriff's department and myself, a couple of uh, Spanish interpreters, video cameras going, and I got to ask him any question I wanted. And I asked him basically everything we kind of knew was true, but I wanted to know for sure. And I said, hey, man, you know, I'm a game warden and I'm fighting this thing on an environmental front. It's not about the weed thing, but obviously you got, you know, 50 plus grows out there and we know the violence. We've been in gunfights with you guys. My partner warden was shot through both legs by an AK-47 in 2005. And after a three hour wait for an air rescue, he barely made it off that hill alive. And that was a real eye opener for law enforcement everywhere on the West Coast, not just game wardens. What what's going on out there? That ain't Cheech and Chong, Mom and Pop, the Humboldt hippies growing weed. Those guys were fortified. They had BDUs on. They had SKS rifles. They lied in wait. They had a fortified position. This is nuts. And this is in the Silicon Valley. So something's changed. He goes, Yeah, you know, um, some of our factions are violent. Some of them aren't. He was candid that he said, you know, I don't want people fighting law enforcement or hurting people. I tell my guys that, but you know, different bosses and different cells do different things. And we certainly found areas in the state were a little more aggressive than others when we get in a, a cartel confrontation. But something he validated was we were in the reclamation issue of cleaning these grows up. And up until we started doing that, um, agencies would raid, they'd cut a bunch of plants that were toxically tainted. Nobody knew it at the time, a carbofuran risk exposure destroy the plants, bury the plants, burn the plants, whatever, chase some guys around. Nobody was really focusing on catching people tactically. We weren't catching a lot of people. Growers were just skirting into the bush to get picked up later. And like a good business model, you know, they just get picked up late in the night and they'd get pushed into another growth site. They were, you know, uh, like a journeyman electrician going to another building, right? And Steve, the craziest part was, and Morgan, what blew me away is I knew that when we started cleaning these grows up, we took out all the poly pipe, and sometimes we'd have to run this pipe back miles to a, a water source through poison oak, spool it up, do the dirty job, pick up all the trash, take out the chemicals, uh, restore the creek, that they would not come back to that site and use that great water source for cannabis. But if we didn't clean it up and we raided it... The infrastructure was there ready for them to start the operation again. (laughs) Thank you. That's exactly it, brother. It was there and they knew how taxed we were. And if if they even waited one season and went back in there the year after, they had an 80% chance of not getting interdicted. And they knew that. And then they said, all of a sudden, we started to see these grow sites in California. We'd go, our guys would go back in, our scouts next year. And it was pristine. We're like, Cops are lazy. They're not going to do that. What is going on? And I smiled and he realized it was one of those things where, so I needed to validate, hey, that's how I'm going to get these other agencies. DEA started to support it. They started to actually incentivize DCEP funds based on environmental cleanup, which was a first. They started to incentivize catching guys and the weapons they had that they were pulling on us. Did EPA ever get involved in this with you guys in terms of supporting? Because they used to have that super fund for like meth, you know, and other stuff. Did EPA ever get involved with this? No, not 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 directly. Because if we could contain the carbofuran and get it out there, uh, get it out there with hazmat protocol, um, it was a it was a one and done deal. Um, the meth chemicals, when they seep on a site like that, are so toxic, and they're usually around a more residential area. I think that's why they were getting a little more help there. We haven't had actually EPA funding, but we've had DEA funding, fortunately. We've had the DCEP money, and we have a lot of money coming in now. Uh, the one, the, <laughs> I'm going to say the only positive about how we regulate it in California is it is generating some tax money 
and there's a flood of money for a fair amount for enforcement and for reclamation. We have our own helicopter now. The team's gotten incredibly advanced. And ironically, in California, of approximately 450 to 500 game wardens in California right now, and I could be off on that number. We might have lost a few. We might have gained a few. I've been out of the game a while. But a hundred of those wardens, or just under a hundred of that, in- our entire force are dedicated to cannabis enforcement, either on the cartel, outdoor, tactical front, or private land enforcement. That shows you how much of an environmental priority this is for conservation agencies that are dealing with this in such a magnitude in a state like Cali. When game wardens, a third of the or a quarter of the department, if you will, of, of cops are dealing with cannabis enforcement, that's that's mind blowing. You would just not think. That that would be, you know, the the it wouldn't be the mo for game wardens as a whole, but the job has evolved to that, and we know, to your point, Morgan, we know that when we go in and shut down a grow site, whether it's a hoop house with a Mong cartel faction, or it's a deep woods cannabis grow in a wilderness area that the Sinaloa cartel has had some involvement in, we know when we shut that that down. Um, we probably, you know, impacted some level of trafficking that went on with that for humans. We know we did an environmental hit, and we know we hit their pocketbook pretty good. Um, it's definitely an uphill battle. I, Steve, you know this more than anything from the long fight you had down with you-know-who. You're never going to stop it. There's always going to be a demand for it. And as long as Americans, 47 million cannabis users or whatever the stat is, and I could be plus or minus on that, we're not going to stop black market cannabis. We're not going to stop black market cocaine or fentanyl, but at least we can inform, at least we can lessen the blow and, you know, every dent. And I tell the guys that are, you know, with morale issues going, what are we doing? You know, I'm going out and I'm raiding, you know, four grows a day and we're barely touching it. And yeah, but John, but let me stop you there for a second for people, for people who say that guys, why are you doing this? You're not even making a dent. How imagine how much worse the problem would be if we did nothing at all about it. Exactly. Exactly. And what I tell the team I left and what I tell any new wardens coming up, I said, look, you know, it might be a needle in a stack of needles, but that one grow site you stopped today, even though there's 15,000 more out there, think how much water you saved. You know, you probably stopped a million gallons or more water at least. And that's conservative estimate by shutting that operation down before it went three to seven months of fruition, sucking the, the state dry. Um, you, you took the poisoning out, you saved some wildlife. You might've saved a farmer who didn't have to leave that was, had his family for a hundred years living a very, what I consider healthy Western, the Yellowstone motif of the franchise, right? That we're seeing this patriotism in the country right now, guys, because it's, you know, shows like Yellowstone and trying to get back to middle America and appreciating the land and working as a family, um, all that. And I'm glad to see that happening in television because it's putting kind of this emphasis on we, we don't need to all be detached. You know, we can live in rural communities. We can take care of one another. We can protect our wildlife and our wild lands. We can live off of it. We can respect it. And I said, just one grow site that you raid out of the 15,000, you've made a dent. So chunk plays, you know, like NFL, it's five yards at a time. We're not going long bombs. Let's talk about John Dutton for a second, because one of the things I loved about <laughs> Yellowstone and Kevin Costner when he became governor, he went after, he said, no more development. We're done. We don't yep. want it. it. It was about protect. Obviously, you know, it's a story. But as you yeah. said, Murph, right, don't let the facts get in the way of telling a good story, just like That's with right. politicians, too. You know, they don't let facts get in the way of passing I bad agree. laws. Yeah. But but his whole focus was on keeping Montana, Montana, keeping the valley, the valley, keeping even working with uh, 
I can't, I've just spaced out his name. I've seen him in other movies, but he was the chief of the tribal nation there working with them to protect and preserve, you know, the land. That was their kind of common unifying thing, even in Yellowstone. How do adversaries get together? They agree that, hey, we got to protect the land against these interlopers, these outside developers. I love it. I love and I, and I love the Yellowstone franchise. I like everything Taylor Sheridan does, man, because I think he's just he's a wire. Right. Is the dude makes money by simply renting out cows two yeah. hundred dollars a day or whatever yeah, it was for the, a cow. The, I think I think uh, you know all of us in this conversation share some American values, and and Taylor's not you know he's big enough now that he doesn't have to play the political game in Hollywood, and he says you know I'm going to tell the story, and him and Costner have been accused of being you know politicizing you know the conservative forum, and it's like no, we're just talking about American values, and don't watch the show if you don't 1887, like it. 1887, 1923, exactly. dude, they've got Love so it. many spinoffs coming that are so sick. My wife is 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 addicted to that stuff. She's rewatching stuff she's already watched like two or three times. I, well, just tell me if you want to watch something different, you know, because the storytelling- it's Fantastic, yeah. But, but it's, but to your point, it goes back to, I remember moving, my dad was military. We moved around the world, ended up back in Kansas in fifth grade. And it was my first introduction to the farming community, the farm people. And my first thing I remember is the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, were holding a contest, and it was about preserving and protecting the land. And even as fifth graders, we were being taught about terracing, about ways to properly take care of the soil, about what pesticides to use. I mean, the science has gotten so much better now. I'll tell you one thing I saw was cool, quick divergence. We have a drinking game. If there's a divergence, uh, you can drink. This is a drinking game. I just saw I just saw something really cool how AI is being used with some of the farmers. So you got your John Deere 4450 now, but on yeah. the back of it, it's pulling a device that is armed with lasers and AI. And what it's able to do is as it goes across the rows of crop, it can spot which are the crops and which are the weeds. And it's using lasers to poof, take out without having to use pesticides and herbicides oh, and some of the other stuff. It's using lasers now to nuke weeds. That's awesome. My, I got cousins in Minnesota that are massive corn farmers, man, middle America. And they have those, you know, million dollar combines they run that are all auto run and, you know, off GPS. And when, when, when David knows he can use lasers to whack weeds and he's kind of a shooter, uh, you might've created a monster there, Morgan. <laughs> I'm I, telling I, you, I, 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 I saw this picture and I'm going, oh, that's bullshit. And then I see the video of it and it's like, poof, 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 poof. It's <laughs> oh, like, damn. Plastic. That is classic. Yeah. But I mean, back to that tone, I, I think th that's such a breath of fresh air to see that type of programming coming back and um, all those issues they talk about. And, you know, this is the thing I don't, I, you know, the, the term environmentalist can, can go really a wrong way. You know, it can get overdone. And obviously we know the moniker that kind of comes with that in, in a good and a bad way. But I think those issues of sensible use of our wildlands and balancing development and everything that Dutton family is bringing up as the big protagonist in Yellowstone. And we feel that um, very, very much, you know, in Montana, I feel it in California. I mean, I'm here, you know, 20, 30% of the year and still working with cattlemen that brand cattle every year. And I'm wrestling calves with them and they're protecting their land and they're conservationists and they have cartel grows on their place. And we met through those, you know, those operations growing up in this area and you would not even know it, but in the Silicon Valley where I'm from, we have a plethora of cattle ranches and parklands and beautiful resources that are threatened every day from encroaching development with people not wanting to do sensible environmental protection. And of course, the transnational criminal organizations that we always come back to on this show, especially having what the three of us have done our careers, these cartel groups. And 
Um, uh, cartels to me are public enemy number one for a domestic terrorism threat. Uh, I don't think they're being handled enough as a priority. I think they're being underplayed in the press. They're being underplayed politically, but America's starting to wake up. Fentanyl started it, right, Steve? I mean, this fentanyl crisis the last three, four, five years has really suddenly gone mainstream because uh, because of so many the demographic across the board of people being affected by it, the human trafficking, the child sex trafficking guys, and we've been seeing it for twenty plus years. In you know who side. got it right? You know who got it right? Many, many, many years ago, it was Tom Clancy. His novel, yeah. Clear and Present Danger. Yes. You know, did. what we need to do is we need a presidential finding that declares the Jalisco, you know, uh, uh, Nuevo Cartel, the, the the Sinaloa, all these other players as clear and pre- present. This is Morgan's, but this is just Morgan's view of how we should do things. You create a DMZ and you say, we, we, uh, recognize we are taking action within a three-mile zone on either side of the border where you have to, because the United States is governed by laws, we're a nation of laws still, so you have the Posse Comitatus Act. You have to invoke certain things before you can actually get the military involved. When we talked about the D.C. snipers and stuff, it was very it was very touchy to even get the military involved with their stuff mm-hmm. to you know be able to locate that stuff. So my, my thing is we make a finding, clear and present danger, create a DMZ on three miles either side of the border and say anything within three miles of the border that is a clear and present danger to the United States, we can engage. And I tell you what, I mean, it's just Morgan's view of the world, but to your point, shutting down the border is so key to preventing this stuff from coming up through Tijuana, from preventing it coming up through Texas and Arizona and things like that. If we can't, if you don't have language, borders, and culture, three things that define a country, then what you do is you invite these problems. I mean, how is it that they're able to get this many people across for 15,000 groves? Let's just put it into a different context. For 15,000 groves, let's say you're talking about that, just the one operation. How many people does it take to run 15,000 groves? With the security, the people, and the infrastructure, everything per grow. How many people do you think per grow? Uh, minimum. I'm going to say minimum ten to get something started on a hoop house or you know in a, in a woodsy outdoor backcountry Sinaloa grow. Two growers, if the infrastructure is there, can set it up. But you come to harvest time and get through the. You're, you're talking ten plus people a grow site. You know, moving that product out, watering it, trimming it, defending it. You know, getting armed guys in there when it's harvest time. So anywhere from 150 to 200 thousand people, let's say, have to be brought in. You know, when these things are going on, you and that's what I'm talking about. You've got this stuff, and how many of those people are involved in the Murder Mountain stuff? You know, the Humboldt County. You've got all the other murders. You've got the exactly, exactly, Morgan. And that's just, and that's on that's on a weed continuum and maybe one state conservative estimate. I'm talking California now. Now, what about people, you know, what about these guys trafficking in fentanyl labs and distribution, the human trafficking ring, which is even larger? I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not more, of embedded cartel operatives within America, without a doubt. And we knew from intel circles that there's a plaza boss in, you know, the upper northwestern part of the country where I'm at in Montana, Idaho, overseeing operations there for all the crimes in Paris, California. Riverside, California, my old patrol district was Temecula, Riverside County. Unbeknownst to me, the hub of the Sinaloa connection and any other cartel that was operating in America on weed and other things at the time. And this was 92, so I was very naive to all of this, but they got a they got a top dog right down there in, in the in the Paris area, without a doubt. We saw that from Intel circles and wiretaps and everything else. When did you get your eyes opened up? When, how far into your career? I mean, you start seeing something. How far into your career did it really, did your eyes get opened up to finally realize 
there's you 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 see this it's a facade it's everything it's like the you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain the wizard of oz when did you finally get to see what was behind the curtain and what was really going on how far into your career did that happen you know fortunately morgan the first taste was about a year and a half in going getting to go in with forest service buddies and dea on a cartel grow right in the cleveland national forest which was a stone's throw from where i lived in temecula california but that was just what it looked like I didn't internalize any, I had no internal knowledge that this was part of a network that was working its way into the rest of America at the time. And what I learned from my DEA compadres, Steve, at the time down there, as I was getting to know you guys and getting to know the military assets on Camp Pendleton, the Air National Guard, and some of the Marine Corps guys that were kind of patrolling on the perimeter of Camp Pendleton that bordered my forest, is that was just kind of the early days when... Sinaloa started going north of Mexico and they started in SoCal and that's San Diego County Riverside. So it made sense. And then I had to do a traditional career. I had to get my game warden feet wet, so to speak, and do spotlighting and interdicting, you know, poachers and developers, trashing creeks and hunter education for kids, doing all of that traditional stuff, which is so important. I love doing it. But when we, when I found that first growth site, my first book, War in the Woods, goes into in 2004 in my hometown, literally, I'm going to say seven air miles to where I'm sitting right now. And I mentioned Henry Coe Park, where I met that game warden, right, back in the day and changed my major, right, bordering that Coe Park is a little piece of county property called the Palisoo Ranch. And it was a hunting club for years and years. And a very good friend of mine, and I won't mention his name, his call sign is GI in in uh, the first book, War in the Woods. And I reference him in Hidden War as well, because GI was a family friend. He was doing red-legged, yellow-legged steelhead fishery studies on threatened endangered species for his graduate degrees at San Jose State in environmental science. Very outdoory. I mean, I grew up with this guy, teenager, preteen, went to high school, great guy. Well, he's watching this these creeks in a study area on this, this ranch I'm, I'm telling you guys about. And it's late April. And he calls me up one day and goes, dude, <laughs> one of my creeks that flows all year for the last three to four years that I've been studying this is bone dry. And there's like little pieces of black visqueen plastic in the bottom. It looks like a bunch of debris been washed down. And he goes, and I don't have, I got dead frogs, steelhead fish that have spawned the little fry and a steelhead trout is basically it comes up from the ocean it comes inland to migrate for listeners that don't know and then it goes back out to the ocean and they are threatened and endangered federally all across the country so it goes from salt water to fresh water back to salt water exactly exactly wow. and they're they're beautiful trout they come they fight and come all the way up these inland streams they lay their eggs and you need a pristine creek with cold water you need gravel beds that aren't polluted and then they they you know basically hatch their fry their baby fish and they grow up in the streams and boom and then they all go out and they migrate every year well these fish are up to about thirty thousand dollars a fish at the federal level as they're protected under u.s fish and wildlife service at the threatened endangered species level and this this is what these guys are impacting when they put that carbofurin in a creek or they take a grow out. So this creek is decimated. Everything's dead. So somebody has to be messing with the water up top. And I'm a patrol warden. I've been back home, I don't know, five, six years here in the Silicon Valley. I know my area. I grew up here. I'm, you know, ripping and tearing. I put him in the truck. We go up to top of the mountain and we drop into this canyon to try to find the water source and where this thing is diverted. 
Um, and it's arduous and it's beautiful and there's no cell phone contact. My police radio, my handy talkie's not working. I got my AR, my backpack. He's an unarmed civilian. And we go down into the canyon and sure enough, we find the diversion. We find a visqueen plastic. We find the creek all blocked up. We find a black poly pipe hose leaving the creek and headed downstream. And I'm like, all right, Dorothy, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is crazy. What is this? This isn't a farm diversion for agriculture for a cattle pond, which I, which it, what it should have been, you know, traditionally. So guys, we, we start hiking down the trail. And fortunately my partner GI is very field savvy. We're being stealthy. We're doing what we do as hunters. And lo and behold, ahead of us, 50, 60 yards are two cartel growers and they're in the green BDUs. They've got the AKs. They've got the machetes on them. They're showing situational awareness. They're scanning left and right. The guy in the back, and I've told this story a couple several times on podcasts that blew my mind is, you know, and we're we're in the mode where we're starting to work with tactical teams in the Bay Area. We're, you know, we're integrating with some tier one tactical units, getting our sniper training, we're getting operator training, SWAT, all the basic stuff that some of us in the agency knew we were going to need later when the time was right. This was way ahead of, you know, right before 9-11 happened and knowing that things were going to get kind of crazy for the country. And, you know, and I didn't know it would come in a cartel fighting team like the Met, but that's what it ended up uh, morphing into. So we were stealthy. We hid in this cut bank and I had my red dot on my AR on these guys thinking, this is going to get really weird. If these guys see us, they do not belong here. Those are not farmers. They don't. They look like Sandinistas, man, down in South America. It, it, I I didn't know what I was looking at. It, it didn't dawn on me. No these, communications. You've got no, no way to comms. call for backup. Nothing. Nope. I can't call for backup. All I can do is hide in a cut bank where you got an undercut of a creek and just hope they don't come down the creek. And they literally worked down the canyon to about fifteen yards from us. And because they were paying attention to the plants, they were looking around, they were working on their water lines, but the guy in back would, would look behind him. He'd check his six o'clock, which our tail gunner does on our tactical unit, you know? So these guys had some training. And the other thing that was weird is you, we'd see them talking, but they would talk very low volume or whisper uh, or talk very softly. And they've never run across a person. And this was probably the four, this was probably a multiple year grow. And they had been hiding in plain sight, but they had tactics. They were hiding. They knew they weren't supposed to be there. And right away, my mind was blown. So Morgan, long-windedly to answer your question, the adrenaline dump, the mind processing what I was looking at, realizing, crap, man, this is not a traditional American poacher poaching a deer out of season or baiting an animal. Uh, This isn't a guy fishing without a license. This guy is not from America. Um, I've heard of the cartels, but this guy looks more like a soldier, like something I'd see, you know, in, in a movie about, you know, the Sandinista Contra fight or something or rebels in South America and Steve and your old fighting grounds. And it just blew my mind. And those guys didn't see us. They worked their way out. You know, they crawled up the Canyon, got out of view. I let out a deep breath of fresh air and, you know, kind of relief looked at my partner. We did not say a word because, uh, GI is very savvy and we gave them plenty of time to get downstream to wherever they were going, to where their camp was, all the plants that we hadn't seen yet. We had seen a couple 18-inch plants, the first growth site, when we contacted them. We hiked out of that canyon straight uphill. My mind was blown. I mean, we were ripping out of there, just adrenalized. And uh, that's when I had to start. I started to get to know DEA, the UNET task force of the task forces that were funded from multiple agencies to raid this stuff. And then we were the bird dogs about three weeks later, to go in and lead the team in to raid that grow site. 
Um, and that's when I met the Santa Clara County Sheriff's officers. Um, a lot of them that were snipers from that agency, they were hunters, they were anglers. We would form lifelong friendships based on that first mission. Um, and then really develop our teams together. And when we raided that guys three weeks later, and I go into this in the first book pretty extensively, um, you know, it was just a different mindset without, you know, putting anybody down. It was a different mindset of what we were doing out there that that team's, uh, basic goal was eradicate the plants and they're going to get a plant count. So they're going to get more money from the DCEP grant from DEA. They're going to get more money based on the amount of plants they eradicate they're not going to get more money for arresting people and they're definitely not going to clean up trash and reclamate anything. So we, we eradicated, we got close enough to guys, did an announcement. The bad guys ran, nobody wanted to chase them. Myself, another game warden and a sheriff's deputy decided to give chase just to see if we could maybe catch these guys. We thought it was kind of weird not to try to catch them. Um, we didn't catch them, but we, uh, we got to know each other through the process and then a Blackhawk, a Payhawk helicopter got called in from the 129th um, Aero Rescue Squad, um, the PJs, and the Air National Guard from Moffett Field. I would now connect with the military and develop assets there in long-standing relationships where we would actually have the Air National Guard and 3rd and 7th Special Forces groups of Green Berets, PJs, and everybody else with the Air Nat Guard supplying Pavehawks to take 4,000 you know, pound net loads of trash, of dope, and get people to help reclamate. And that would, that would, we would see what we didn't want to do in the future on that operation. But we now knew we were fighting the cartels. And the fact that they were in my backyard in that park that I've been learning to backpack in. So it was personal. You know, it was deeply personal. And now it was a focus. Was that not a bad tactic on their part, though, to completely divert all of the water supply? Because at some point, th- that, that's, your, that's your indicator, right? I mean, if you're looking for flags and tripwires, that's a tripwire. All of my water is gone. Now you follow it back to where the water ended. Now you've got your source of uh, supply for the grow. I mean, did they adjust tactics based on things like that and let some water go through? Or did when they do stuff like that, did they just completely divert everything because they need it? Yeah, you know, that's never been asked, Morgan. That's an incredibly good question and um, something something that, that's good to clarify. They will not take all the water to avoid indicators, to avoid being detected if they can avoid it. But marijuana is a thirsty plant, right? And this ended up being a 7,000 plant grow. And what was happening is that was when our droughts were kind of heavy and they were needing, even in the initial stages with small plants, they, the creek was flowing so little that year. Um, out of the two, my buddy G.I. was studying, they needed to take all of it to fortify what they needed to do. And that's why it was indicated. The other thing was they had probably been sucking it pretty dry because we were in a long window of, of drought or semi-drought, you know, for about a 10-year period when that was happening, 04, 05, and beyond. Um, that creek wasn't being monitored, you know. So when it would go dry early, nobody down below from agency would really go, oh, okay, you know, it was a, it was a dry year. We didn't have a lot of base of water levels, guys. Our, basically, our aquifer is low anyway, so it's going to dry up a couple weeks after the rains are over. So the cartels could grab all that water, and then the drought would just kind of mess what they were doing. But in this case, we happen to have a real savvy fisheries biologist who knew every inch of that canyon, studying it, and it was my, my buddy G.I., and right away he knew – Hey, the rains have just ended. And, and plus he had a creek to compare it to, which was ripping. And this one was bone dry. And had he not been doing that study, who knows when that grow would have been found. It might have been five years longer that they continued to decimate every fish in that place. But yeah, it, it, they do try to not take every they'll, – they'll put 
um, they'll basically put a water diversion pipe, start basically a gravity suction, bury it and hide it in black poly pipe where it's completely underground or under rocks in a big pool that's as natural as possible, um, but not take all the water where the water is still flowing. And then as the water starts to deplete and they have to take more water throughout the summer because, you know, 90 days is about the the shortest window of a harvest you're going to have on one strain of cannabis before you pull those plants and don't need water anymore. But, you know, you could go seven, eight months, nine months on some strains. And if they're not getting detected and, they're, and they're, their uh, grow isn't being taken out early, they might get three strains in a year if we don't interdict it. So they're constantly going to be dealing with depleting water levels, trying to make the creek not look like it's bone dry until they don't have any more water and they're just going to go for it. You know, they're not going to stop operations. They're going to take that chance, hope they don't get caught. And then when the water dries on the surface, they start digging in the aquifer in the creek. They start going underground. And there's pictures in Hidden War. Well, I think Murph's got the book open, right? You got some pictures there, Murph? And Murph, you'll see there's some pictures in there, brother, where I've got one of my operators leaning down with his shotgun and his camos, peeking into basically a well cistern they dug 30 feet deep in the delta when we were in our peak drought 2016 2017 when all these all these creeks in these uh coastal mountains and our sierras were bone dry so a lot of cartels went to the delta they went into the sacramento delta on brackish you know which is you know kind of freshwater meeting saltwater and they would get on these islands and then they'd still have next to these creeks no water so they'd have to dig these wells by hand, 30 feet deep to get to the underground aquifer. It was nuts how much work they were putting into getting this water, you guys. And I've got we've got pictures and we describe it very, very succinctly of how mind-blowing these missions were in, in the book. You think about that, going down 30 feet and you're out yeah. on patrol in the dark and you step in a hole, you're dead. You're going to break something so bad you may not recover. Right. But I just want to throw out, uh, and if you'll bear with me here just for a minute, um, and uh, this is this is what really got my attention, the following stats that I'm going to throw out here. So in your book, you say each plant required 10 to 12 gallons of water per day for, four, for 150 days until the harvester is ready to thrive. And some of these plants you're hitting, there's 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 plants, right? Right, right. And it's 10 to 12,000, I mean, 10 to 12 gallons per day per plant. And then, I, and I'm just going to toot your own horn here for a minute. So uh, this is taken out of uh, Chapter 10. You're talking about the, uh, the pilot program between 13, 2013 and 2018. These was, were some of the uh, successes you guys had. Destroyed 3 million poison marijuana plants. Season destroyed 58,677 pounds or 29 tons of processed weed. Made 973 felony arrests, seized over 600 firearms, removed 450 tons of gross site waste and other pollutants, Recovered and removed 445 miles, 445 miles of black crazy, pipe. Yeah. Removed 46 tons of fertilizer. Extracted 756, 756 gallons of illegal toxic chemicals, and dismantled 793 water stealing dams and diversions from the from the complexes. Those dams stole approximately 12 billion gallons of water. Well, sounds like Doctor Evil. 12 billion gallons. Uh, <laughs> this is just mind blowing. It's mind blowing. You know, shame on me as much as anybody else for being involved in narcotics investigations for so long. And I had no idea the problem was this bad. Well, and John, let me ask you a question too, real quick about that. Murph, you brought up something because I always think about stuff. I think about 
Timothy McVeigh, uh, Terry Nichols, uh, sons of bitches, built the bomb five miles from where my mom was living um, mm-hmm. that they wow. used in Oklahoma City. But one of the ways they did it is they bought ammonia and uh, nitrate, and they were able to buy it without a lot of people worrying about it because right. there were no regulations around it, no indicators. The reason I say that, so now if you go and you buy certain things, that triggers, that's a tripwire, right? It seems to me for these guys to be able to, to work, one of the tripwires ought to be, how many miles of, of, of the PVC pipe was it? Was it 45 Four, miles? 445 miles. 400. Why did you, did you, how did you guys start setting up tripwires to start saying, look, anytime somebody buys 10 miles of uh, the, 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 you know, the black PVC pipe, you know, that's probably an indication that they are involved in an illegal grow. What were some of the tripwires that you guys were looking at like along that? Yeah, it would be trying to, you know, get help from the Home Depots across America or across California when someone goes in or a landscaping supply and just cleans it out. But the the cartel factions got smart real quick and they started to diversify. Like they're not going to go in to Home Depot or some landscaping store and grab, you know, 70 rolls of black pipe now. They're going to go to 20 different Home Depots and they're go- they're going to grab several hundred feet that you know, most landscapers do in a day when they go landscape a new development or people do in their own yards. Um, and I've literally been in, no joke, guys, I've been in some Home Depots and watched, you know, a S- Hispanic female and not typecasting anybody, but knowing what's on the cart and seeing the stuff that's on the cart from the Fisker cutters, the scissors, the loppers, the black poly pipe, you know, the miracle grow, and knowing that, you know, there's a pretty good bet that that may be going a, a certain direction, you know, you just, just, you know, time in the field tells you that, but, but it's, it's hard to tell, man, they're getting very, very careful about how they do it. And they're not stocking up in any one area and they're diversifying, you know, where they get their supplies. And the other thing is they've got embedded supply stations here in America and they're getting that stuff set up ahead of time. I mean, they're not bringing two. They're having their caches set up. I mean, they've got a supply and logistics. They do. They got a supply yeah, they're, depot. Yeah, they're they're getting really, really, really smart. But fortunately, you know, back in those days when the first book was written, there was no Google Earth. You know, we weren't seeing this stuff on satellite imagery. We were getting tips. We were doing flyovers. We were scouting south-facing slopes that had really good sunlight. And, you know, knowing that one out of two times, we'd probably go find a grow, knowing the demographics of where our our blue line streams might have had a little water. But, Morgan, every little tip and, you know, trick you can find that way, we're always trying to think outside the box. And, and Steve, you know this from from your big fight with with, with Pablo's regime, man. It's a cat and mouse game every day. You know, you get a tactic where you start getting intel that they don't know they're giving up, and then they counter it, and uh, it's the same way inland doing what we do. It just it's a more rural kind of fight, you know, more of a nomadic, um, woodsy kind of fight. But and even that's turned to, <clears throat> like I said, these private land hoop houses that are in rural areas and dealing with how they're supplying and getting their water. I mean, your politicians lessen the crimes down to misdemeanors. I basically write a ticket and they walk away. How much incentive is there to stop? There's none. It's a joke. Yeah, brother. There's just so little incentive to stop. And, and you know, my thing is, is just reassuring the men and women that are out there risking it every day um, from the Cannabis Enforcement Program. Another acronym, Morgan, CEP is what we call that division of the game wardens in California. And, you know, they're out there doing high-risk warrants every day on private lands, and they're running across growers that have been human traffic. They're running across grow bosses that are doing the trafficking. They're running across EPA banned poisons. They're running across tainted weed. They're, you know, risking exposure. 
uh, just to open up a hoop house and ventilate it and know that all that toxic crap is on the same stuff that was on outdoor weed that we fought in the woods. Um, and it is not going to go away as long as this current law stays in California. We don't think politically it'll ever change, but we definitely, you know, again, through this platform, talking to you guys, we all have an enforcement background, but anybody in a cannabis consumption background or wherever you sit, um, I've got a real good relationship with legitimate cannabis groups now. I mean, one thing I talk about in Hidden War in that last chapter is regulation five years later. And in the newest updated version, the second, third edition, we talk about what's happened in the last three years since book one was published and what has failed. And now we're five years into poor regulation in California as what I think is a template for not only the nation, but the world of what can go wrong when you regulate a really bad way. We can learn a lot. We can get a lot of positives out of this negative, this kind of this shit show we started in Cali, um, which is like I said, it's a state full of beautiful resources and beautiful people. And I care very much about what I protected here for 30 years and and gonna and gonna continue to do it in forms like what we're doing today. But the bottom line is um let's learn from our mistakes, you know, and let's try to really make a dent and bring the environment in so we can unify it. Thank yeah. you for saying that. That's called studying history. We don't do away with our freaking history. We're supposed to study it and learn from it. And we sure have and we sure have we have short memories, man. <laughs> you know we have very short memories. We we're amnesic when it comes to history. Yeah, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Damn right. Um, hey, hey, you know, I got to tell you, man, after reading your book, I'm thinking this would have been so cool. I'd have loved to done, you know, do what you guys were doing out there until you've captured everybody and secured the site. And now you got hours and hours of pulling those damn plants and <laughs> roping everything together and waiting on helicopters. And I mean, that's the fun is over, you know, what? I mean, if you got to infiltrate and surveil and all that, maybe a few hours. But then once the fun is over, you got some freaking manual labor to do. Yeah. What's the old saying? Everybody wants to do gangster shit till it's time to do gangster shit. And that's, that's exactly clean right. it up, man. <laughs> that was it, man. Guys, that's 100%. That was, that was the dirty job. And there were so many... You know, I mean, you had to be wired right on the team because you didn't want to, you know, after you've already done a raid, you've been up at two that morning doing a briefing, you go in and MBGs in the middle of the night, then you raid, you assault, you catch, let your dogs do their thing. And, you know, right, Steve, then you got to secure the grow. You got to put up security. And now you're going to eradicate anywhere from two to 20,000 plants. And that's, yeah, that's, that's hard, hard work. And now you're going to clean it up. If you have the, if you have the people and you have the helicopter with fuel left, you're going to try to take all this crap out. And, you know, nine times out of 10, we didn't have that bandwidth at the end of a mission. So we would go back and still do late fall, winter and hike into these grows when it's, when it's wet, it's cool. Nobody's out there doing any damage and we'll just bag that stuff up. And it's a nasty job in the winter, but at least you're not out there with, you know, heat exhaustion issues and get that knocked out and then bag it all up and come back in when you have a blade to take it out. So yeah, it's not glamorous work and it's not, I'm not going to say it's fun. Um, and that's why a lot of people just don't like it. It was, it was hard to convince other agencies until they really got embedded in the environmental component and could get rewarded for the environmental reclamation for their funding that we would get sheriffs and other agencies helping us actually do the reclamation. They're like, Hey man, we'll, we'll, we'll lend our SWAT team out, put us anywhere. We're not gonna. We're not gonna collect trash, though. You know, everybody yeah. wants to be in on the arrest. Nobody wants to do the paperwork. You know, exactly, Morgan. <laughs> and fair. we had so many guys like, okay, man, we're gonna hold the perimeter, and then I'm, you know, you guys are code four. You're safe. You're out. Yeah, we're uh, out of okay. here. Right. SWAT teams mobile. Have fun, guys. And there's ten of us out there just getting our ass kicked till midnight. Unbelievable. And then, and then later in the book, as the, as the laws changes and, and were minimized, I mean, it got to the point where sheriff's offices wouldn't even come out and support you guys anymore, would they? Yeah. 
Yeah, one of the missions, and I think we need to talk about this one, uh, second to last chapter in Hidden War, was literally a gross site on the Sierra Azul open space property that half of that that public land is in Santa Clara County and the Silicon Valley side. The other half is over in the Santa Cruz County side. And I talk it about, um, you know, Sierra Azul Deja Vu 15 years later is what I named the chapter because when my partner was shot, when Mojo was shot and near fatally on August 5th, 2005, and, and that's a day that, you know, that's a day the career path changed. That's a day that, you know, was the worst day, um, and, and, and really kind of I, ironically, it led to a complete shift of something I think was the most relevant environmental crime protection we could shift to was this cartel fight on trespass growing specifically um, when, when Mojo was shot. But that was Sierra Azul, and that was a very aggressive, fortified, um, you know, prepared group of growers. Well, Sierra Azul on the Santa Cruz side, it's that same crew. They just happened to be in another county. And what they did is in Santa Clara County, they kind of, I think they kind of realized, hey, if you're going to grow here, you're going to have canines that are probably going to bite you because these guys got well-trained dogs. They're not going to just fly over and scare you away. They're going to hunt you down. And if you pull guns, you know, and you put them in danger, you're probably not going to survive that day. And what happened was when Prop 64 got enacted and all these LE agencies, Santa Cruz included, said, okay. We're not going to hunt cartels for misdemeanors. We're not going to put our people out there. We, we're going to go hit the mom and pop permitted people, check them for paperwork, check them for water use, check them for seed to sale tracking, whatever. So in Hidden War, we talk about that mission in Sierra Azul and it, that place that we called it Asshole Alley. We had had, I wrote about the most important chapter, the most important mission in the book, but we had four or five over about a three, four year period, always a lot of guns and formidable guns. We're talking 12-gauge shotguns, AK-47s, ARs, Colt 1911s, 38 Supers, the old cartel special, you know. Um, and these guys were they, were, they were wanting to fight. We had a lot of hand-to-hand. We had our canine engagement. Um, I had a lot of close calls, taking people into custody, trying to pull Glocks on us, you know, grow bosses on my partner. We had a lot of weird stuff go down. And now we have a mission that we have to handle, and no one's helping us, Steve, like you mentioned. And it's us, and I actually, ironically, in, in another county, I borrowed sheriffs from Santa Clara County that were our brothers and their dog. They had a tier one dog, and we took three canine teams to that show. And that was the day we had another gunfight um, that I talk about, you know, very, very succinctly. And our lead canine handler, Brian Boyd, who had a new dog after canine Phoebe had passed a leukemia, um, uh, a legendary dog that the book goes into. And I won't belabor what, what Phoebe's story is, but, you know, a national record setting dog of 116 cartel bites and saving a ton of lives and, you know, interdicting guys before they could get guns on us and save my life personally about 20 times over again. What was her nickname? Uh, the fur missile. I love that. Yeah. She was aptly named the fur missile. We called her like a J dam on an F 18 Hornet fire and forget. But you know, the thing about Phoebe guys, and I'm on a sidebar because we all love, we're all animal lovers here. Um, she was the coolest dog from the standpoint of just, she was an old soul Belgian Malinois. And what you'd see from her is <clears throat> friendly, like my white lab, you could pet her belly scratcher. She'd play with you. She'd do ball tugs and all of that. She never bit an officer by mistake. But in a briefing, when we were all geared up in the middle of the night and we're all in similar camouflage, half of us are painted up in the face. We got our night vision stuff going on. And here's this dog as Brian's doing his canine briefing, bringing her around to every operator. And she just rubs up on your hip. She gives you a little hip check. 
She looks you in the eye. She smells you. She kind of, you know, puts out her, 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 her That's chin. like a dog version of IFF, identification friend or foe. Yeah. You want to know, are you a that's friendly or you're a bad yes. guy? <laughs> Morgan, that's it exactly. And basically she would look you in the eye. I'm not even exaggerating and say, hey man, I got you on this. And she just had our backs and she knew her game. It took her about two or three years to get just surgical to do this particular cartel apprehension job in the, in the conditions and the terrain we did it in. It, it wasn't something dogs were doing in America. Um, and, and Brian was was the guy to make that happen. And we had a lot of really good dogs develop from that program. And, and we still do. Our whole canine program has just grown leaps and bounds, even since I retired. But um, but she was a lifesaver, man. And um, we had three good dogs on that mission. And uh, we had an armed grower coming down into the kitchen with a handgun out in his hand, another semi-automatic pistol in his, in his fanny pack. And um, we had two guys that bugged out up top that had an overwatch, basically, uh, you know, kind of an LPOP, a listening post observation post outside their tents, redwood trees where they were in shade all the time. They had kind of a parapet of, of, of earth and hard dirt for cover. And you'd have to come right through the growth site below them. They had high tactical advantage, high ground. And I'm glad we didn't end up engaging those guys because they were lying in wait with heavy guns. They had the AKs, they had the shotguns and, um, they uh, they disappeared that day, but we did obviously interdict the the one that we got in the gunfight with, and that was just um, a testament to what we had learned. And one of our guys didn't get hurt that day. Um, everybody went home safe, and it took a long time. And that's why it was kind of that full swing of now we know what we're dealing with, and we've been supported to fight a domestic enemy with as a priority. And I think um, there's a lot of encouragement, a lot of motivation uh, from that. And that's what I derived um, from that experience of, 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 you know, running the team and, and working with the, well, you know, Steve, from the team you worked with down South, man, and Morgan guys you've worked with, when you have that dream team and everybody's in it for each other and everybody's tireless and, you know, as a supervisor, you got to pull the reins back on the thoroughbred and not tug them along. I mean, it was, it, it was beautiful. It was an absolute treat. And I don't even, I, it was a blur, man. It was five years of constant hundred hour week plus, you know how it goes. And, uh, and it, that was a good way to go out. And I'm just kudos to what they're continuing to do. You know, you love when you're doing, when you've got that kind of circumstance and you thank God that, you know, that your guys are coming out alive. Uh, you know, there's, you can talk about training and tactics and preparation and all that, but you know, good Lord has a final say in this. So God bless you guys for what you did. No, amen, brother. And thank you. But one point I want to make, you, you pointed out kind of those stats that are in hidden war and, those stats sound really freaking impressive because the numbers are kind of massive, but I got to qualify it. That was just us, our team, and just a microcosm of the issue, just a dent of what's really out there. And that's not the stats that other teams were getting and knowing that we were part of a law enforcement community doing missions together and apart. And knowing that, you know, that's probably only, I mean, we're lucky if that's 80% of what was out there illegally. If we got if we got 20% of what's going on out there, we were doing really, really well. Um, so much more going on out there that's just getting unchecked. But it, it does give our listeners a, a, a template of going, that was madness, man. I mean, it was that much weed, three, 3 million plants and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But again, that's just, again, that's you know kind of a, a grain of sand in the big stack. And well, you know, We used to joke around, and, and these type of jobs, best job security in the world, because we're just scratching the surface. Yeah. yeah. 
There's something to do every day. Hey, let's bring this. We're going to have to bring this to a close, but I, I want to end up by asking you about um, you got a lot of cool stuff going on, not only being involved, you know, with the uh, documentaries and the unscripted stuff, but you mentioned stuff that I know several people out there drink monster energy. So what, <laughs> what do you got going on? What the hell are you? What do you got going on? Not that you lack for any energy as this interview shows. I mean, would you do pound three or four monsters before we got on? Because, but tell no, us I, what you're doing with monster. <laughs> now, the cool thing with monster energy is I was very, very lucky and blessed to uh, connect with um, their professional side-by-side, basically the UTV, the Can-Am race team. Um, for best in the desert and also the Baja, the score Baja series. And um, aside from being a conservationist and hunting and fishing and all the outdoor stuff and just loving, loving being in the woods for any, anything that's, uh, that's healthy. Um, I've been an, uh, a desert racer and an off-road racer and recreational rider for years on an ATV motorcycle. And, and now I've stepped up to the side-by-side UTV class. Um, I was uh, spent a lot of time in Baja before starting the Met. We, what is we a side by side UTV for? Uh, I, I don't know what so that. Those is. are like a, those are like the you know you see the utility ones that hunters use. They kind of look like a, a mini Jeep, but they look a four wheel motorcycle. Okay, but they or like a, a quad ATV, a four wheeler, but they've got a cage. They've got you know a box around them. They they more like a like a dune buggy. You know a really. And they've gotten really, really advanced. Um, and my love for racing, you know, really, you can't top it other than when you go down a race in Baja, Mexico on the score series, uh, Ensenada down to La Paz, the whole Baja Peninsula. And in 06, um, we started the uh, J&J Ironman racing team where we would go down and, and solo those races without relay riders and try to be the first to do that, um, but also support orphanage down there. We, we have a great uh, group called the El Oasis, um, just kids homeless on the streets of Mexicali, Ensenada, Takati, things like that, and and generate those races to generate funds and resources for, for some of those kids. You know, one, just to give them an opportunity, and two, hopefully they don't end up in the cartel's hands and going down that path, you know, obviously with how evil um, that uh, the children get roped into, into those organizations. But yeah, um, you know, they say with age comes a cage and soloing the Baja 500 with trophy trucks chasing you all night and being on the machine for 16 to 22 hours was getting a little much when I, uh, I, I accomplished, <laughs> I did that in 2013 effectively and Hold finished on. The I race. got a, I got a very important question about that. So 16 to 22 hours, you're drink. I mean, obviously you got to be drinking fluids and stuff. It's pretty hot out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wh- how do you go pee? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, I'm sorry. I can't. I'd be out there in the race. Oh, a gas station. We got to stop. Hold on. Boom, pull over. <laughs> well, this, this, that's a great question. A when, a when, I was, when I was racing quads, it'd be one of those things when I stopped for a fuel stop every 50 miles, I could jump off the machine real quick or stand up and go run to a bush. Um, when I'm in a race car though, in a side-by-side, when I'm, when I was navigating for monster and I, I can't race in Mexico with them anymore, obviously because of, uh, what I do, but, um, I was down there for a couple races and, and doing some stuff in state and, and navigating for their number two and awesome driver, um, um, Bradley Howe. Um, you actually have a catheter. And you have a tube in your race, your fire suit. Okay. Um, All right. I am not doing that. You, if I yeah. have to put a catheter in to have fun, I am not doing that. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, that. it's not. Think of, think of it as a condom with a long hose at the end of it. Nothing's going inside, man. I can't do a catheter, okay. but it, okay. it's, 
maybe I, I defined that poorly, but, and that was the first time I'd ever had to use that. And cause I'd never raced a vehicle like that at that level. And that's what, you know, that's what anybody in a race car typically does on a long endurance race. And it's weird, you know, and, uh, then you get in the position where you're going so fast, you're bouncing around so much, even if you have to go, you can't go. And then you got to find that plug. Like, are we ever going to stop for fuel, man? We got like five more hours. You hit one of those, you hit one of those bumps and you go, Oh, guess what? Don't have to go anymore. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of trickery in the race community on, on, on how we urinate on the go. Like fighter pilots, they have the same problem. I I've hear, been watching so. the tour de France. I mean, that's one of the, my productivity goes down when the tour is on good. Fortunately I can pause it, but yeah, you see those guys that are out there for God, 180 kilometers and it's kind of like, dude, when do you go? And some of them literally, they just pull off their bike. They run into the woods, they go and they hop back on their bike and they catch up to the Peloton. I'm going, man. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those days on bikes, man. It, it, it's, it's always a challenge, Morgan, for sure, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And I, I, and honestly, that's, that's kind of the bittersweet, you know, about doing what we do is Mexico is so beautiful. And so the Baja Peninsula, the communities, the farming, the people, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful country. And I think everybody has this misnomer of Mexico as the cartel hub and everybody's corrupt, you know, and, and you have a lot of that certainly because you, 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 you have that third world country nature, you have the issues that they can thrive there and they come from there. I get that, but man, the people are awesome, you know, and, and Steve, I know in your dealings with what you were doing down South and what we've found, I mean, no one likes an evil cartel. No one, you know, they don't like them in Mexico. They don't like them here across the border and evil is evil. And it doesn't matter where you come from and what ethnicity you are and what color your skin is. Um, we're all in uniform on that. I just, um, you know, we want to do everything we can to protect everybody. It's really a humanitarian kind of effort, uh, not just an American effort, but, um, but I, I do miss being down there because it is so fantastic and the people are wonderful to the race community. It's it's a fan sport. Everybody comes out for the Baja circuit, the the four races they do a year down there, and um, they sure make us feel welcome, and we have a good time. Hey, so so all our listeners, go check out John at John Norris, J O H N N O R E S dot com. That's his website. You'll find out more about him, especially about the El Oasis Orphanage. Take a look at that. Uh, the fact that he used to be into the uh, Ironman triathlons. Are you still doing that by chance? I've done two. I, there, there may be another one in my future if I can slow down a little bit, but yeah, I did, uh, I did an Ironman in Zurich, Switzerland in Oh seven. And then in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is right across Coeur d'Alene's kind of my, I call it my, the home Ironman. And they did away with the long course, the 140.2 mile course. I'm doing the long one. If I do another one, I want to do one more long one before the body says I can't. Um, and I hear it's coming back to Coeur d'Alene. They're actually going to do the full Ironman again there on the Ford circuit. And if that happens, you just got to find seven months to train six days a week um, in that window. And that that's that's a hard commitment, but, uh, but I'm enticed. I'm enticed. I won't say yes for sure yet, Steve, but it might happen. I'll tell you what, brother, I will be supporting you from my easy chair here in Orlando looking out on the lake in my swimming pool, okay? <laughs> yeah. A 70.3 would probably be my future, not a 140.6. And for those of you who don't know, it's, what is it, a 2.2-mile swim? Um, yeah, 2.4 on the water, 112-mile bike ride, right, and, and 26.2. As they say, it's swim to go, bike for show, and run for dough. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't. I don't go that far in my car, in my truck. Of course not, because you got to stop at a gas station and pee. You need to get one of these catheters. John's got man. Have yeah, him. but all the information you want about John is on his website. His books. He's got three books out now. He's onto the speaking circuit. Anything you want to know about John John Norris, go to his website. 
promote this podcast for us, get the word out there. Because again, you know, just the statistics of what's happening to our national resources, uh, the disregard for wildlife out there. Again, I'm not a tree hugger, but I mean, this, this is way beyond that. Uh, the way that our lands and our, our country are being decimated. You know, we didn't even talk about, we, you were mentioning fentanyl. We're at the point now where there, we average about 300 overdose deaths per day here in the uh, United crazy. States. So, yeah, crazy. You know, just folks, support John and what he's doing and everything he's doing is a great job. Even though he's retired, it's like I say, just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths expire. And John's a living uh, perf- hey, proof of that. Did you give him an so, extra like, book? Because I only saw two. Do you have the three books out, John? Well, we have, yeah, we have the first and second edition of Hidden War, and we have War in the Woods. Yeah. What about right. Where There's Smoke? Yeah, I co-authored that. That's multiple authors. Um, Ashar Miller, professor down at Pomona. But yeah, Up, up in Smoke, I contributed to Chapter 2 as well. That's, uh, that's a good read because it's got some environmental science input from other folks as well. We want to make sure we give credit for that. So you got Up in Smoke Absolutely. and you've got Hidden War, um, How America's Special Operations Game Wardens Are Reclaiming America's Wildlands from the Drug Cartel, and Warn the Woods, Combating the Marijuana Cartels on America's Public Lands. Look, dude, we can go. I mean, this is definitely, uh, this is definitely, we're putting a pen in the map. We're saying there will definitely be a follow up conversation on this. We want to have you back on. But, Love to, guys. Thank but you. But you've got to, we have a request from Stephen, not Seagal Siegel. Steve's a uh, cop. He uh, <laughs> and his partner, one of the guys he went through the academy, uh, died during one of those operations where Wayne was shot. Um, wow. And so you, you, so we're asking you for a favor, get us introduced to Wayne. We want to get Wayne on as well, get him on here and talk about his story and continue this on. So, you know, I've got, I've got him on my list and I've actually got a phone number for him also. So we're going to. Yeah. And I'll set that up guys as well. And one thing I, one thing I can say guys on Hidden War, what, what's, what I really enjoy about this book is it's the first time our publishing brand did an audible and I got to narrate the audible. And got to work with uh, Billboard artist, producer, uh, Trammell Starks in Atlanta. But what he did is he put a score to this thing with the canines, with the water flowing, with the gunshots, the helicopter. Oh, cool. Did music to wow. it. So what's what's really gr- attracting people, because no one's reading books anymore. They're all buying audibles or, or listening to podcasts. So um, we just did the new audible for the updated version. And the audible is available on Amazon as well as print copies. And if anybody wants a personalized copy, just hit me up through the website through an email. And I'm glad to take care of you there. And um, you can follow me on Instagram at J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S, just John Norris on IG. Same thing on Facebook for my social media handles. And guys, man, thanks so much for having me on and all you're doing and helping network the message and you know being part of our thin green line. Well, we've only barely scratched the surface. We've only no, scratched the surface. Just like you talk about scratching the surface there, Murph, with this. We've only scratched the mm-hmm. surface here. We're going to have to have another discussion around this. But we are. So we're going to bring it to a close right now. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. All right, man. I'm, what did I tell you? The other thing, too, is, wait a minute, dude. Now, you thought I talked a lot? This <laughs> dude can talk for an hour without taking a breath. He's got so much information to impart. And it's all good information, not like Morgan's just rambling bullshit. You know what I'm talking about here? But and, and that's a joke, everybody. This was, uh, again, you heard me say it at the beginning, one of my favorite interviews that we've done. Just have the utmost re- respect for John. He created the what they call the uh, MET teams out there with the wildlife officers, the marijuana eradication teams, required them to learn how to become snipers. Uh, the things that these guys went through are just as dangerous as anything I've ever faced or you've ever faced, Morgan, anywhere in the world. 
So hats off to you wildlife officers out there. John, thank you for your sacrifice. Um, what I love about your website, and, and go check him out at johnnorris.com. He even has a tribute to his dog who passed away, his yeah. dog Jordan, who was uh, developed cancer and could have gotten it from all those shitbirds out there bringing all of those all of those damn chemicals, chemicals. Into our country. You know, Murph, the one thing I learned from this, it's because you know about it, but then you don't, but he hammers it home. And he's that's what he's talking about. It's the environmental damage. It's what it does to the the legitimate in California, it's legitimate. You can grow marijuana in those areas, but and for the people trying to be legitimate, try to stay, uh, come out of the come out of the shade, you know, come out of the darkness, the shadows, you know, mm-hmm. into the light. It makes it so difficult for them because the state hammers them with taxes and fees and everything else. And guess who's not paying taxes and fees? Exactly. It's the cartels. And then they're ruining the land for everybody else. I mean, there are some places there where it will take years, if not decades, for that land to recover. But they don't care because they don't live there. All they care about is getting right. the crop, harvesting it, and moving on. And now with the, with the legislation where they've taken all the penalties away and they've you know made certain things who before would put you in prison now you get a ticket, well what the hell are they afraid of? They, you know they just the, the the cartels down in Mexico just sit back and laugh at us dumbass Americans up here. Hey, go, let's go do what you got to do. If they come after you, run off in the woods. If they don't find you, we got another spot for you. Don't and the legislature didn't listen to the experts on this, the people who are out there actually fighting this. They should have listened to them. But anyway, Absolutely. we digress. Just go visit that. Check out his book. We got everything on our website. Uh, it's, it'll also be in the show notes for the episode. So, man, what an amazing story. So, anyway, if you enjoyed yeah. that episode, you enjoyed that story, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where we'll have the uh, information about John's. We got the trailer uh, for some work that he's doing. We've got his books there. Also, follow us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But uh, also make sure you go to Game of Crimes fans, uh, the mafia queen with the velvet glove and the iron fist. We'll deem you worthy. Just answer a couple questions. Get in there. Hilarity, jocularity, and insularity. We insulate you from the horrors of the world. See, I'm, I'm, I'm a rhymer. I, I should be a I should be an old guy rapper. All right. BS artist is I what said you a hip, are. Hop, I'm a hip to the hippie to hip hip hop. And you don't stop. I was there for the original one. Anyway, but just head on over there and do that. But also where you got to be is patreon.com slash game of crimes. Patreon.com slash game of crimes. Once more. That's patreon.com slash game of crimes. We got some good stuff coming. Patreon.com slash game of crimes. I know you forgot because you thought it was Patrick O'Connell. Really? He changed his name? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Patrick. (laughs) I'll deal with this guy later. (laughs) I can't believe that. Uh, Murph, got got, time for your nap again, Murph. It's almost noon. (laughs) Yeah. My mama's taking me out to lunch today, so it's a good day. Mama needs to be taking you back early, too, so you don't get lost. All right, guys. Well, hey, look, hopefully you enjoyed that. Like I said, we really appreciate uh, you guys supporting us like that. Give us your feedback on this. Let us know what you think, and we look forward again to telling you another story on the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 